You are listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast, episode 109. The Canadian immigration process can be complex and frustrating. With the Canadian Immigration Department making it virtually impossible to speak to an officer, there are few places to turn to for trusted information. The Canadian Immigration Podcast was created to fill this void by offering the latest on immigration law, policy, and practice. Please welcome ex-immigration officer and Canadian immigration lawyer, Mark Holthy, as he is joined by industry leaders across Canada, sharing insight to help you along your way. Welcome back, everyone. We're here again in another of our business immigration series. Last episode, we talked about the challenges that happen when an LMIA is refused and all of the various reasons why that can happen. Well, today it's positive, much more positive. It's about the approval. Now what? I'm once again here with my faithful compadre and the industry leader joining me today, Alicia backman Harry, How are you, Alicia? I'm doing well, Mark. And yeah, I'm happy to talk about good news on LMIA approvals for once and imagining that if a company does have their LMIA approved, then, then what do they do? And hopefully, actually, they've thought about this a little bit ahead of time. And so they're not down to the wire and just trying to figure out on the fly what they do. But hopefully they would have talked with their immigration lawyer and had a business immigration strategy in place because it matters quite a bit what you do because you either have the option of applying at a port of entry, maybe if you have candidates that are only requiring an electronic travel authorization, or you might be looking at a whole online process with a TRV required or a visa required applicant. Yeah. And that's interesting. It always surprises me when we're talking with companies and, you know, as they start down the process, many of them do not understand the difference between the source country you're pulling people from. And let's, let's face it, in many circumstances, when people are coming to us, they have one candidate that they've identified that they want to hire and they haven't started the process, they've pretty much already got the contract signed, and then they ask us to figure it out, and then we're taking a few steps back. And uh, it's quite timely that we're doing this Business Immigration Series podcast because of uh, some of the clients that we have that we're working on. And um, it's amazing how many issues can come up that you just don't think about until you're right in the mix of things. And so the more, and I think this is why this podcast episode will be so helpful for people, you know, because we will address it from the standpoint of a company who wants one person. Maybe they, uh, you know, they're, they're trying to decide what source country. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, but also when they're looking at larger volumes. And we just, you know, recently received a, a, an approval for up to 60 heavy equipment operators for one company. And, uh, and then we've got some, another LMIA that was approved just recently as well for, uh, for the same company. And it's created perfect talking points for our podcast because we've had to live through this in, in real time. And so you've got the LMIA approved, Alicia. And mm -hmm. fortunately for us, we've had these discussions with the employer. And in many cases, these LMIAs were, were unnamed LMIAs. So now we've identified the candidates that, were, that are being placed onto the LMIAs. But there's a difference depending on the source country. So maybe why don't you start with that? And why it's important to know mm -hmm. where you're bringing the person from and the advantages and disadvantages of some countries over others. 
Yeah, and just like you mentioned too, Mark, it is important if you did an application for a named employee, then at that point, so you would have made sure that you finished your advertising and recruiting. At that point, you then make sure that they have a signed employment agreement. You've entered into something in writing with your employee and then you can say, yes, I'm adding that employee as part of the LMIA application. That would be a named employee. And you can do that for one employee. You could do that for multiple employees if you were doing a bulk LMIA. But if you have not named your employee, there is an additional step. So just be aware that if you did a bulk unnamed or just a, a single unnamed LMIA application, you would actually have to go back now, once you're slotting people in, to add that person's name citizenship and date of birth to the LMIA and then that comes on as a schedule at the end of the LMIA itself. So keep in mind that there is that. But if you're not sure, right, and if you're trying to figure out, well, do I actually add this person, then one of the key considerations is they're a citizen of which country? Where do they have now, nationality? Now, Alicia, before we jump right into that, I think the natural question lots of people will ask is, how long do I have to build in for this name to be added? You know, have, mm -hmm. w what's our experience been recently in getting those names added? And obviously, I, I guess I should qualify this because, you know, we've done a lot of groundwork with the SDC with this one company. And so, we, we, you know, we've got pretty much a liaison officer assigned to them that is, that is helping to facilitate this stuff. But normally, what are the ranges of time? Yeah, so normally, and, and there's a caveat here because of the current strike, so normally, ESDC should be getting back to employers within a reasonable amount of time. Like normally it's a few days. Once you send in the form, you're normally getting that back within a few days. Or if you have, and it's actually on the website, if you have fewer than five employees that you want to name on an approved LMIA, then you can actually, the employer can just call the phone number and speak to an officer right away. And it should be done hopefully the same day. That's, that's, that's pre -strike. the gold standard. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what was happening pre-strike. However, as of April 19th, now we have a strike and it is affecting Service Canada ESDC officers. And so it remains to be seen. There's some uncertainty here about how long it will take to add named workers to an already approved LMIA. So if this is a situation that you're going through right now, I would suggest do it as soon as possible. If nobody's answering the phone on less than five, then you might need to send in the form and do that as soon as possible. Good advice. Yeah. So, so yeah, if you're not sure which employee you're wanting to add, because once you put people on the named slots, so if you had 10, you've got 10 slots. And once you put them on there, you can change or substitute or remove people. However, when that person goes to apply for a work permit and they use that LMIA number and it's linked to their work permit application and there's an adjudication on the work permit itself, that LMIA spot is usually used up. So up until the, the time that they actually apply for the work permit, you can shuffle things and you can change who's listed on that LMIA. But once it's actually linked to a work permit application itself and that's adjudicated by an officer, then it's, it's gone and done and you've lost that spot. So that's another key consideration. And I remember years ago, um, it wasn't possible to do that, which in my mind was absolutely infuriating. What I mean, what I mean is they... Uh, you weren't able to swap out names and uh, you know it was kind of set 
once you, you know, once the name was attached to the LMIA, if they never used it, decided they didn't want to come work for the company, well, too bad. So this has been one positive development, as well as the, the actual LMIA is being valid for 18 months, which gives companies a little bit more time to, you know, to, to sort it out. Because in many instances, by the time the work permit is ultimately refused or something happens, six months is gone, and then you're back at square one. And, uh, and so in this case, at least you have the ability to, um, to, to make the necessary changes and accommodate for unforeseen issues over the, the length of the 18 month LMIA. Mm -hmm. And some of this is strategy too, because if, if you start going down the road of vetting a candidate and then all of a sudden you realize there's some inadmissibility or there's some lack of eligibility in terms of that person just can't justify their work experience or suitability for the job, then maybe the company's in the spot of having to swap out the named workers on that LMIA. Yeah, exactly. So let's dive into the distinctions here, Alicia, from source countries and where you're pulling people. Yeah. So of course, your path of least resistance, the easiest way to bring people in, the fastest way to bring people in would be to look at your ETA only countries. So if you're looking at Americans, if you're looking at Mexican citizens right now, if you're looking at most of the EU right now, there is a list, of course, of visa exempt countries who only requires an ETA to travel to come to Canada. And if you happen to find a candidate who is only ETA required, then fantastic. All that needs to happen is that your immigration lawyer needs to work with that person and ensure that they have all of their eligibility and admissibility documentation in place. And then that person is going to have an application package put together, which they will then present when they come in. Normally, they're flying in through an international airport. Occasionally, they might be coming to a land border, a, a port of entry, but they would present that package there. There's no form per se. It's simply making sure that they can answer the officer's questions and prove that they have, this is a big one, Mark, and we can talk about this, the language required to be able to function in the job. And it's a safety issue. So making sure they can reasonably understand and answer questions that are put to them from the officer. And then if they are approved, they can do biometrics right at the airport. And depending on the type of job, occasionally there might be a medical condition that's put on that work permit if they haven't already done their medical exam. So that's one thing to keep in mind too. If, if you're working in a job that requires interaction with vulnerable populations, or if it's a medical related job, then make sure that your applicant has completed their immigration medical examination as well. Great advice. I remember Alicia, I used to do a fair amount of work for doctors and they'd be coming up from the US, which was always a port of entry application. <clears throat> and this is something, it's good that you brought this up. Certain source countries may be visa exempt, but may be medically required. Now the US, it wasn't the case country that was driving the need for the medical. It was the fact they're working in healthcare. And there was always challenges getting those medicals done up front and then properly linked to the candidate because they had not yet applied. They weren't in the system. They didn't have a unique client identification number. So we had to go through a number of different hoops to try to make sure those medicals were there and in the system and, and available. And to a large extent, that still exists. But some countries, let's say South Korea, and I'm not sure if it's changed, was medical required and at the time, but it was visa exempt. So you would uh, apply for, you know, an intercompany transfer for an executive coming from, uh, from, uh, from South Korea, 
and then you wouldn't realize when you got to the airport that they needed a medical. And there was a time when the officers were somewhat facilitative and would, you know, basically give them a direction, like all of the Kuwait visa for the, U the Ukraine uh, nationals coming in. They would give them a directive to go get their medical done within 30 days. But some officers would say, no, you don't have your medical. I can't give you the work permit, you know, hit the road. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So it's a risk. So just like you mentioned, Mark, it's sometimes the job itself requires that you have that medical examination, depending on the type of occupation and where you're working. But sometimes, even if you're a citizen of a country that's not necessarily medically required, if you have traveled or lived in another country that is medical required, and most of this has to do with, with TB, um, then you still have to provide that medical. And so that's where the rubber hits the road on these applications. So make sure that when you're doing your due diligence with your candidates, you're screening for where have you traveled, where have you resided in the last year um, in terms of country of nationality, but also visiting countries and then looking at what the requirements of the job are going to entail. So medicals can, can come up and bite you unexpectedly if you're not aware of that. But otherwise, if you are looking at an ETA, required applicant and that person is coming to the port of entry you've got your application package you've dealt with the medicals issue and they're just doing the biometrics ideally that work permit is issued right at the border and as soon as they get it then they're good to go they're able to work and now of course there's a number of caveats and we can talk about all the things that you've got to be screening for and worried about because as a lawyer that's what they pay us for right we we're paid to worry about all the things that could go wrong and try to proactively prevent that one other thing i guess i'll just toss in now and it usually doesn't apply in the context of a of an lmia based work permit but it's always good that the the foreign worker when they come in take a look at their work permit before they leave the airport or the port of entry. Because if there is a mistake, and sometimes officers make mistakes, um, it's far easier to correct it before they leave the office than to try to get it resolved after they've left. And we do see it more often in the context of the International Mobility Program with those work permits being issued, which we're living with right now, right, Alicia? But it does happen with LMIAs, which we've also experienced recently. So just be aware of that. Mm -hmm. That's one thing that, I mean, it's it's on our cover letter, it's on our instruction letter to the employee, it's on the submission package that goes to the port of entry officer, it's on the letter from the employer, you know, all the specific remarks that might be on that, on that work permit that are required, especially if you're dealing with an employer and the job is in multiple locations. And this tends to be where people get tripped up because sometimes the officers, you know, it's busy, the airports are overrun, there's long lineups and they don't put the remark on their authorized to work at project sites across wherever, across the country or across the province. And this is potentially a big problem in terms of the audit or the compliance review that could happen because if there's a worker who can't show that they're authorized to work at that location, that's a big liability for everybody involved. So yeah, trying to fix things after they're not added to the work permit is, is a whole other issue for a podcast. Yeah, that's a separate probably. podcast. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yep. But yeah, moving to, okay, we've got our whole ETA world and ideally you're looking at candidates from electronic travel authorization countries. But if you cannot find your can candidates from those countries, then you're looking at visa required 
applicants. And visa required applicants cannot simply show up at the border. It is not allowed. So they have to have done an online application ahead of time, consular application through their GC key portal or the rep portal that is submitted online. And of course, there are going to be processing times. So they tend to be long. And if companies are not prepared for this, it might be a bit of a shock to the system to realize that depending on the source country they're looking at, they can go online and check the IRCC posted processing times, but you might be looking at upwards of a year or two years for applicants from some countries. Exactly. If I go on right now during our podcast and I'll pick, I'll pick Nigeria. That seems like a good country. So we'll pick Nigeria for a work permit. Processing times in Nigeria are, I love how they do this, Alicia, 25 weeks. So, Mm -hmm. you know, and then you take that compared to let's go, let's say you have someone that's a visa required that is in the United States. So maybe they're not a U.S. citizen and processing times are seven weeks there. And when it comes to business planning, that that's a huge issue. And another problem that you have to address is the fact that these are backward looking processing times. So there's nothing saying that those processing times can't jump up or jump down. And so you do the best you can to give a ballpark figure, but you really have to make sure that you, you know, establish a clear caveat with your client, um, with your employer that there's no guarantee it's going to be processed in the time frame that they would want it to be processed, mm-hmm. let alone and this the strike. A, yeah, yeah. And when you're talking about that market, it makes me also think about the importance of having some conditions in the job offer itself. So in the offer of employment, make sure that as an employer, you are putting some sort of conditional language about the fact that this does not take effect until that person has actually issued their authorization to work. And so the start date is going to have to be malleable depending on if and when that work permit gets approved. So that also flows down to, you know, project timeframes, completion dates and just scheduling and, and how to get all those moving pieces to line up. One other anecdote I guess I'll share is, uh, you know, we were discussing some um, some of the logistical issues with some potential recruiting companies that were assisting um, our clients. And uh, one of them had done a lot of work back in the glory days, you know, back pre-2015 when the rules changed substantially. And, and they hadn't done a lot of recruiting to Canada because the market just wasn't of that nature. Now we're returning back to those days. And it's really critical that if you are working with a recruiting company, that they are very well apprised of the new rules of engagement, because there were certain assumptions being made, including whether or not language was a requirement or whether or not they could have just a spokesperson. Like you could in the old days have a, one person that spoke, you know, was the intermediary between the workers and the, and the employer that could, you know, that could speak English and translate. Well, those days are long gone. And then also the days of just showing up at a consulate and fast tracking applicants, you know, those days are gone. So Mm -hmm. managing expectations is critical, not only for the employer, but for whatever recruiting company or whoever's helping to source the workers. Yeah. And the other managing expectations that's important too, is the messaging that all goes to the employee. Yes. Because sometimes as soon as those employees think that they might have a job, they might've already quit their, their other house. jobs. They might've yeah. sold their house. <laughs> Pulled their kids from uh, school. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And maybe they're not added to the LMIA yet and they're trying to book their flight and all of a sudden, you know, you've got to tell them, well, wait a minute, 
this, you need to have been added to the LMIA as a named worker, and we can't get you here quite yet. So there are there is some risk. There's corporately some risk if these people think that there was a representation that they were actually given employment. And so there are some thorny issues for sure that can develop. And so making sure that you have a good process, making sure that you understand what has to happen when, so that it's going to be as smooth as possible for the employee, for the recruiter, and for for the employer and the immigration council as well. So a number of moving parts. One of the things that I have found is helpful is making sure that basically I've developed, we've developed a, a screening pre-questionnaire so that when companies are looking at potentially recruiting, you're going to deal with some of those issues up front that can basically tank your application on the back end. And those involve is there potential criminality? And this is one of the big thorny issues that employees often don't want to discuss, whether they had a really old DUI or whether there was an old, I don't know, break and enter or theft charge in lurking in their history. Or just a bar fight, Alicia. Like, come on, that happens all the time. That's just what it's about growing up in Ireland or wherever. <laughs> just boys being boys. That <laughs> Well, and this is the thing too, the, those things, especially in the UK, this, this is often a problem that I find with UK applicants is there's usually the Rehabilitation of Offenders Act in the UK. And so sometimes people are told in their home country, well, look, after 10 years or however long it is, 20 years or whatever it is, maybe this has been wiped off of their local records, but that does not mean that they can just ignore it or fail to disclose it for the purposes of international immigration. For coming to Canada, it is not automatically wiped off the record. This is something that they actively have to disclose. And here's another problem. If you're from an ETA required yes, country and you've been bring that up. blissfully traveling back and forth to Canada as a visitor and on your electronic travel authorization, there is a question that says, have you ever been arrested, arrested. Mm -hmm. charged, convicted of any criminal offense ever. And if they think, oh, well, you know, it was too long ago and it's been wiped off my record and they say no to that question, that's probably misrep. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely it is. I remember, Alicia, when I worked on the board, and I think I brought this up in the past, we would, uh, in order to make sure there was no loophole for the person to say, well, I didn't know what you meant, we would ask everything from, have you ever been fingerprinted, handcuffed, in the back of a police car? Have you ever been taken or detained down to uh, you know, a police station? And have you committed a felony or misdemeanor, for example, in the US? Um, mm -hmm. Have you ever been convicted? You know, Have you ever gone to court? <laughs> yep. And yep. so you close and off every single avenue, and if they say no, and then you know, your fellow officer who's the old dot matrix printers in those days, you hear this bzzz, 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 <laughs> it's like the print, the printout. If you heard more than two pages coming through, you knew there was something else on there. And then it made it pretty easy to say, sorry, pal, you know, you won't be coming in today. Well, and not only are you not coming in today, you are probably going to be barred for misrepresentation for five years. So this is a really big deal. And so it's important when you're vetting candidates to check what have they said on their prior applications. And it's maybe it's an electronic travel authorization. 
which is so innocuous, right? It only costs $7. You can do it online. They can do it themselves. They don't even think about it. Um, but what have they said on those ETA applications? If they've previously come, if it's a visa-required country, then make sure that you're checking all those applications too. Or if they came on a prior study permit or a prior work permit, a lot of these um, ETA-required countries, people might have come on IEC work permits in the past, right? They may have come on a working holiday program in the past. And so if there's discrepancies in their history, if there's things that they need to divulge, that all has to be dealt with. Uh, the other thing to check is to make sure that they actually have their letters of reference from their prior employers, that they can prove that they have the work experience that the company was requiring when they are advertised for that LMIA. And then the other thing is making sure that if they're having family members accompany them, that those family members don't have criminality or don't have inadmissibility. So medical inadmissibility, but also prior misrep or something else lurking in their background that could make the entire family inadmissible. Yeah. And that, you know, one of the things when we put together uh, that online kind of questionnaire that we make available to our employers, it, it sure does help to screen. But it doesn't matter how good your questions are unless the individuals are honest in responding, then often you're, you won't see these issues until maybe they're arriving at a port of entry and the officer does a quick little search and depending on what country they're coming from and, and they realize, oh, this person has had either a negative history with immigration or something that wasn't disclosed and there's nothing worse than having to deal with it at that stage. So you do the best you can and you make it as easy as possible and the upfront screening saves so much time if they respond properly because then you're not wasting your time going through all the process of collecting their information for a work permit when maybe they've had a DUI last year and you need to look at rehabilitation or you know a temporary resident permit um, mm -hmm. to try to overcome that depending on the urgency of the, the entry and the need for entry. Yeah, and that's why not only have we built in this kind of pre-assessment questionnaire, we also have a very detailed process once that employee is actually working with us. I'm not going to just take their word for it. I'm actually going to sit down and have a call with them and cross-examine them. And sometimes it does turn out that there's something there that needs to be divulged and disclosed. So also having an agreement in place with the employer and yes. the employee in the event of a conflict of interest. And I think we might have touched on this before, but making sure that you've got some agreement to say, look at in the event of an actual conflict of interest, here's what's gonna happen. There's gonna be information sharing. Everybody's needing to sign off on the fact that you can't just withhold criminality in your past. So, or anything else for that matter and how that information is gonna be shared for privacy purposes. Exactly. So have some things to make sure that's outlined ahead of time. Journey Business Plans is the leading immigration business plan writing service provider in Canada. With more than 10 years of experience, Journey has grown to become a trusted partner for immigration consultants and lawyers. Journey focuses on preparing business plans for a number of immigration applications, including intercompany transfers, startup visas, significant benefits, self-employed, PNPs, and so much more. Their main competitive advantages are reliability, responsiveness, and overall customer service, and I can attest to that. For those of you who don't yet know about Journey, ask your colleagues about them. They're amazing. Or even better, try out their work. You can visit their website at www.jorney.ca and mention you listen to my podcast with the code HOLTHYJOURNEY10. That's H-O-L-T-H-E-J-O-O-R-N-E-Y number 10 
and that'll provide you with a 10% discount on your very first business plan for new lawyers. We're so grateful to have Journey Business Plans as the title sponsor of this podcast. So Alicia, it's one thing to get the LMIA approved. That's fantastic, celebration, everybody's cheering. But often, some companies and some of us counsel neglect to carefully assess the applicant that they're looking to bring in to ensure that they can actually perform the duties and have the background, the work experience, the education that the LMIA stipulates is needed. So screening that out, how do you address for this, Alicia? Yeah. And this is where I think it's so important to have an independent recruiter and then immigration counsel, because if you have somebody who's acting as a recruiter and doing the immigration work at the same time, there's an inherent conflict there because as a recruiter, you're incented to just bring in the volume, but that is not going to probably best serve the company, the corporation. And there's a potential risk that if you go to the border or if you have your people appear and enough of those people are not qualified, it reflects poorly on the corporation as well. The officers are gonna start to to question the integrity or the, the vetting of the candidates. So I would say making sure that the screening is done and also those application packages and the people are prepared. So not only having good paperwork, but having taking the time to actually sit down and talk with those employees so that they understand the process and the fact that they have to answer those questions truthfully when they appear at the border, even if it's an online application that's been approved by the visa office, the rubber still hits the road when they're in front of the officer and that officer is gonna make the final determination. One of the thing I wanna point out too is that Canada stipulates the requirements for positions when you're applying for these labor market impact assessments. So there are specific employment requirements that are listed in the national occupational classification. And you as an employer may feel like a person is good enough with just on the job training. But if the NOC stipulates that the person needs a minimum of a high school education or a degree or whatever it might be, that can be a huge barrier for candidates coming in that do not have that. And, uh, you know, we've, I've seen many occasions over the years where an overseas visa office has um, basically refused a work permit because they feel the person doesn't have the requisite education that's stipulated on the NOC. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so I think there's a pressure too for the companies. They've spent all this time and effort. They can't find Canadians. They start going down the LMIA road, they get the LMIA approved, and then they're trying to find candidates. And maybe they start saying, oh, well, that candidate looks like their work experience is fine, but they stop looking for things like the high school. And if high school was something that they advertised from the initial LMIA, and that was a screening criteria for candidates in Canada, Immigration is going to hold them to it as a screening criteria for candidates from overseas also. So making sure that everything that was advertised in the LMIA itself, those parameters still have to fit the overseas clients as well, because that's the basis upon which the LMIA was approved. Yeah, far, far too many uh, LMIAs and work permits I've seen fall apart because the individual didn't have those requirements. So yeah, clear, clearly important. Now, when it comes to applying at a port of entry versus a visa office, there are some significant 
distinctions. Now in law, the assessment should be the same. Assessing whether the person will abide by the temporary conditions of their stay, but the level and degree of scrutiny that happens um, between a port of entry application and a, a consular application can vary. And what a visa officer is looking for in the context of an online application versus what a border service officer is looking for in the context of a port of entry application can be quite different and you need to pay attention to those distinctions. So maybe just touch on temporary intent a little bit, Alicia, because this is something that's often overlooked because this is added on on top of the fact that yes, the person on paper meets all the requirements of the LMIA, but there's still this added bona fide assessment. Mm-hmm. And this gets trickier the longer the work permit term is, right? So if you have an LMIA that's eligible and open for 18 months and the work permit itself is able to be issued for three years, let's say, it becomes harder and harder for people to prove they're going to go back home after three years. And so sometimes we talked about sometimes that employee jumps the gun and decides to sell their house and pull their kids out of school. And then they decide when they're coming over that, and this is the worst, this is the worst mark on the the border applications. When you have somebody coming up with a U-Haul with all of their possessions in the back of the U-Haul and the immigration officer says, how long are you planning to move to Canada? So there's still permanently, needs to be a Alicia, permanently. <laughs> We've sold our house. So I've got this work permit. I'm super excited. We're coming and to Lethbridge. And if they say that, if they say that, it's game over. They're done. They're not getting that work permit if they say they're coming permanently. And so you're able to have a dual intent. You're able to say, I'm coming temporarily. And if I'm eligible, I will apply for PR in the future. That's fine. But as soon as that permanent intent displaces the temporary intent, it's game over. They're done. They're not getting their work permit. So having a conversation with those employees to say, look, it's still important to show that you have ties to your home country. Make sure you still have a bank account there. Make sure you still have someplace you can go to stay. Um, maybe you get a family, a letter from a family member saying that they still have a place for you to stay there. If you're maintaining property there, make sure that you keep a copy of that documentation, especially if you're doing an online application. If you're from the visa required country, these things are very important. Making sure you can prove that temporary intent. And the more family members you're bringing with you, so let's say it's just mom coming. You know, you still have to prove temporary intent, but if husband and kids are still there, uh, that's a pretty strong you know, tie back to your home country. If you have mom, dad, and all the kids coming, you have a higher onus in terms of the proof of temporary intent. And, you know, Alicia, for years, this whole concept of dual intent was really brutal. And source country, once again, determines a lot of this. You know, it's it's way more um, difficult to secure any type of temporary application from India, let's say, than it is the United Kingdom. And uh, it's for this reason we've seen a series of updates from IRCC because there's somewhat of a hypocrisy, I guess you could say, because they've repeatedly said, the ministers repeatedly said that temporary residents in Canada make the best individuals to settle. But at the same time, the overseas visa offices says, oh, you've got an express entry profile in the, in the pool. Well, you must have permanent intent. So I'm not going to approve your study permit. So more recently, April the 5th of 2023, they once again updated their program delivery instructions um, to, well, let me read it. So to expand language around the spirit of the law, 
that the existence of two different intents is legitimate according to section 22 sub 2 of the act and should be viewed as complementary, not contradictory. And then they also included a section on temporary resident to permanent resident programs, reminding officers that Canada actively promotes these programs to foreign nationals and that Canadian work experience is a strong indicator for successful settlement. So this is stuff we've, we've talked about for years, but we've seen a very harsh hand that's been applied, especially in countries like India and Nigeria and uh, you know countries where on the surface, there appears to be a larger overstay risk. They will err on the side of caution and say, oh, if you've got any intention of permanent um, you know, intent, we're just going to refuse. So there's grounds for us lawyers to challenge these things when they happen, but the messaging has been clearly set out and, and reiterated by the, uh, by the department. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's also more complicated now in terms of the new legislation, in terms of permanent residents or temporary residents being able to purchase homes. And so be really careful. And there's law societies put out some circulars about that as well. But be really careful if that worker starts asking you for advice about whether they can buy a house or a condo or an apartment in Canada if they're only here on a on a work permit. So um, those are things to consider. But temporary intent if you're going to have an applicant doing that as an online application, absolutely there needs to be temporary intent proof. And it's not its not intuitive. It's not clear from your online document checklist that you have to provide a whole bunch of proof of temporary intent. It's not really something that's actively disclosed to applicants. So unless you know the law or unless the company understands the law, this is usually an area that is you know, sparsely addressed in applications on visa applications from overseas. So make sure there's some sort of documentation proof statements from the worker about their temporary intent and that hopefully they have a travel history. They can show that they have complied with coming on a temporary basis to other countries in the past and that it's hopefully likely they will continue to comply with their obligations. And I guess the, the, um, the twist to that is if you have a candidate, and this does form a part of the eligibility when you're assessing candidates or screening them at least for admissibility. If you have a potential candidate that has had multiple refusals from the US, um, you know, Australia, New Zealand, UK, and um, those do play a role in whether or not Canada is then going to say, okay, we see that these other countries that are our partner information sharing countries are, you know, that are similarly situated, you know, to us, if they don't think that this person has, you know, temporary intent and they're refusing, well, should we really do the same? So it's important that those questions be included in the screening of, of potential candidates. Yeah. And then your risk for misrep goes up because when you're on doing those online forms and you have to declare on the statutory declaration sections, whether you've ever been refused in the past, if people don't remember that one time on the school trip where their visa was refused, that can be a five-year misrep bar. Or being included in a, a parent's application and they didn't even weren't even aware of it as a dependent, even a minor dependent, potentially, you know, those things can come back and haunt. And, you know, I guess that's a good segue into family members, Alicia. So we've hinted at a little bit some of the things you need to focus on, but how do family members impact in this process? So one way, which we talked about a little bit, is the more family members you bring, the more you've got to prove the temporary intent. The other thing is that most of the time, there's also going to be a need for a spousal open work permit application. 
and the rules have changed a little bit because it used to be only high skilled workers who had work permits that were valid for more than six months on a tier zero, one, two, or three, which used to be the knock O, A, or B were eligible to have their spouse get that high skilled or get a open spousal work permit if they could prove they were doing high skilled work. There are potentially, of course, now the options for lower skilled applicants who have work permits valid for more than six months to try to justify the application for an open spousal work permit, even if it's lower skilled work. There are some exemptions where certain applicants in certain categories are not able to make that application for the spouse. Um, keep in mind, I mean, we're talking about LMIAs here, but keep in mind if you're looking at free trade agreements and IMPs, there are very specific spousal provisions there. But if it is an LMIA, most of the time the spouse can come over. If it's a high-skilled LMIA, that's good. You just have to be able to prove that it, it will be high-skilled work and the work permit will be valid for more than six months. The other thing are, are children. So if you're dealing with kids, then and you and I go back and forth on this, Mark, because mm -hmm. it does depend on the school jurisdiction, I yeah. find. So in Calgary, the school boards often require some sort of proof that the kids have a study permit, even if even if they come through and they're actually inside Canada already. So assuming that the parent has come through and then the kids are joining them after and they happen to already be here, technically under Section 30 sub 2, they're able to be able to go to school without a study permit as a minor as long as their parent has a valid work permit but and, and Alicia that that occurs guide. even when you're applying at the port of entry directly because once they touch down and are applying they're considered in Canada so a study permit isn't technically required for those kids they can apply for a visitor record and study on that basis but yeah that's just another example that happens all the time mm -hmm. but if they're doing an online application yes. for a visa from outside Canada you absolutely have to apply for yeah, that study forced. permit if yeah. they want to go to school. And a lot of times people don't realize that. And so one thing to keep in mind is that all primary and secondary schools in Canada are automatically designated learning institutions. So I know a lot of people start panicking, oh, I need a letter of acceptance from my kid's elementary school. No, you don't. You just need to include proof from the website that all primary and secondary schools are DLIs. Um, but making sure that you have the proper documentation depending on the age of your children and whether you're doing that online visa application or applying at the port of entry. I've also had the opposite thing happen, Mark, where sometimes you've got a school-aged child and the officer at the port of entry says, oh, the kid doesn't need a study permit. Yes. And they, they won't issue the study permit, which is, I think, incorrect. Yeah, yeah it's, it's <laughs> problematic. A problem. Yeah. You know, when it comes to family members, um, you know, there's there's a whole assortment of, of things that can come up. And obviously, we're just touching on the very periphery of these issues. You know, there's what do you do with dependent children that are older, that are not in school? And we're not going to dive into a lot of those issues, but you definitely have to bring them in, you know, take them into consideration when you're when family units are coming, that you're applying for the right documents. Um, in example, when it comes to schools, I found that the city schools tend to be, and the school divisions tend to be much more strict than the rural ones. So Southern Alberta down here, half of the school divisions, they, they, don't, they don't really care. Like the Lethbridge School Division does tend to care a little bit more than say, you know, Palliser, where I used to work as a, as a, as a high school teacher. Actually, Horizon is where I worked. Um, they weren't nearly as strict. With, uh, with what they wanted to see from students who were coming. So 
It just depends. But we as lawyers, we deal with possibilities, not probabilities. So we don't care if it's more likely than not the school division will be fine. If there's a chance that a school division will not allow a, ch a child to study because they don't have a study permit, well, we tend to err on the side of caution and recommend that they just get it up front. So these yeah. are some of the it's, issues. It, it's such a small difference in the processing fees that it just makes sense to make to make that study permit application. Um, the other thing that I wanted to touch upon was if there are custody issues. And so if only one of the parents is traveling to Canada and they're trying to bring a child, make sure you get that consent letter. If there's a divorce judgment, if there are custody agreements in place, all that's got to be there to prove that there's no international child abduction. And that could significantly delay the application. So be aware that there are requirements if there are families that are traveling with only one parent for a child and the other thing that i wanted to say too was it's hard on these work permit applications because there's no medical screening usually for dependents up front and sometimes what happens is mom or dad comes over on the work permit they have a child who has high needs and they come to canada they work for three years then they try to go to apply for permanent residency and it turns out that, of course, this child has high medical needs or is possibly having a medical condition that might cause excessive demand. And then the entire family is now medically inadmissible and they have to go home. So those are really, really tough situations. So discussing with employees ahead of time that there are medical inadmissibility, excessive demand provisions and making sure to canvas their entire family. Very important. And like all of this, it's all it's all about strategizing. It's about trying to anticipate problems in advance and checking off all of those boxes as soon as possible so that then it just comes down to whether or not the visa officer or port of entry, you know, officer, border service officer is willing to issue the permit. So thanks so much, Alicia. So this concludes our episode on the positives of, of the work permit processing after you get an LMIA. Next episode... Well, we're going to shift back from a happy discussion to a more somber discussion. And that is when employers find themselves in trouble with, uh, with non-compliance and the penalties that are possible. And uh, essentially, remember, employers are deemed to know better. And uh, if you are willfully blind, and I'll finish off with one last little anecdote, which is a consult that I had with um, just yesterday, and the employee overseas has been... You know, we've, I've had a number of consultations with them. They're looking for pathways to, to come to Canada. And they got a great job offer from a, an employer in Ontario. Well, as we discussed and looked at the options, I realized that they had done previous LMIAs, but the employer really knew, knew very little about the process. And in fact, they hadn't even paid for it. And uh, so when I advised them that it was actually illegal, you know, then the conversation kind of ended pretty quickly. But as an employer, you can't be willfully blind. You have to know what your obligations are. And I think that's one thing that we take a lot of pride in, Alicia, is making sure that our employers know what they need to know to not only be compliant, but to have best practices and be prepared for future audits and whatever else might come. Our job is to make their life easier in the, con in the context of what I would consider to be the most awful type of application you could submit for immigration. Well, for SDC, it's the LMIA. So we'll talk about that next podcast. But thanks so much, Alicia, and we'll, we'll see you back at it again in another edition of our Business Immigration Series. Thanks, Mark.
Thank you for listening to the Canadian Immigration Podcast. Your trusted source for information on Canadian immigration law policy and practice. If you would like to book a legal consultation, please visit www.holthylaw.com. You can also find lots more helpful information on our Canadian Immigration Institute YouTube channel, where you can join Mark on one of his many Canadian Immigration Live Q&As. See you soon, and all the best as you navigate this crazy world we call Canadian Immigration. Yeah.